Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. And if you have your Bibles, I'd ask that you open them to Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. And we'll be reading the first 17 verses of Matthew, chapter 1, this morning. Yes, I am preaching on this passage that is full of names, uh, but they are names that are placed there by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so they are names that we need to hear and consider uh, this morning. So, uh, once you find Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, please stand for the reading of God's Word. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Matan, and Matan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. This is the reading of God's word. May he add his blessing to it. You can be seated. You know, there are many memorable and famous opening lines, opening lines that are so immediately recognizable that we know what story they begin as soon as they are spoken. For example, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, probably all of us recognize that those are the opening lines of the first Star Wars movie. Uh, Most of us will probably recognize these opening words as well. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. These are the opening lines of the Dickens classic, A Tale of Two Cities. And of course, some of my favorite words, the night Max wore his wolf suit and made mischief of one kind 
and another. These are the opening words of Maurice Sendak's Where the Wild Things Are. But this morning we come to perhaps the weightiest opening lines ever to be written down. The opening lines of the New Testament. And what do we read there? How does the New Testament begin? The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Really? A family tree? It starts with the genealogy of Jesus? That's how it begins? Well, it seems to be surprising that it would start this way. And then we get a bunch of verses that follow this opening verse that kind of read as compelling as a phone directory might read if we're not paying attention to what's going on here. It doesn't seem like a very exciting way to start the New Testament. So why does Matthew begin the gospel this way? And furthermore, why did the later compilers of our New Testament deem these words to be a fitting start to our New Testament? Well, one of the first things we need to notice is that these words connect us to a larger story. These words connect us to a larger story. These may be the opening lines of the New Testament, but they do not mark the beginning of the story of God's plan of redemption in history to bring salvation to sinners. The beginning of that story actually goes back into the Old Testament where we first read about David and where we read about Abraham and where we read about promises made to each of them about their offspring. And really what Matthew is telling his readers is that Jesus... This Jesus who was born on Christmas Day is the culmination of the Old Testament story and the fulfillment of all of those covenant promises that we read about in the Old Testament. Jesus is the culmination and fulfillment of those things. But furthermore, the genealogy also testifies that Jesus was a real human being. He was a real human, born at a particular place, born at a particular time in history, and born to a particular ethnic people. This is not the stuff of legends or fairy tales. This didn't happen a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. It happened here. Jesus walked on this earth as a real flesh and blood human being. In fact, the genealogy of Jesus speaks of fundamental realities for us as Christians. This genealogy speaks of fundamental realities for us as Christians. Realities that we need to bear in mind not just during the Christmas season but realities that we need to bear in mind day after day and week after week as we strive to live for and endure for the sake of the kingdom that Christmas brings. So what fundamental realities do we discover in the genealogy of Jesus? Well, let's start with the reality of God's grace. That's our first point, the reality of God's grace. And where do we read about God's grace in this genealogy? Well, it's actually all over the place. Grace is all over this genealogy. You might have noticed or might have heard before that there are four women who are mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus. We read of each of them before verse 6. We read of Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and the wife of Uriah, who we also know from the Old Testament as Bathsheba. Now, this is a very peculiar set of women in this genealogy. We read about Tamar in Genesis chapter 38. And we read there about how Tamar schemed to conceive children through her father-in-law Judah after her husbands had died and left her childless. 
Tamar schemes to conceive children through her father-in-law, Judah. That's what we read about Tamar in the Old Testament. We read about Rahab in Joshua chapter 2. Now, Matthew is not explicit that the Rahab he mentions here is the Rahab from Joshua chapter 2. But the other women he mentions are all well-known to his readers from the Old Testament. And so it would seem that the Rahab he has in mind here, because he doesn't identify her in any other way other than her name, that she would have been known to his readers. And so we assume that this is the Rahab from Joshua chapter 2, who hides the spies. Now, Rahab is mentioned two other times in the New Testament. She's mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 31, and James chapter 2, verse 25. And in each of those instances, elsewhere in the New Testament, she's designated not just by her name, but by her career path. Rahab the prostitute. Rahab the prostitute is in the line of Jesus. And we read of Ruth in the book of Ruth, and we discover there that Ruth is a Moabite. So like Rahab, who's a Canaanite, Ruth is also a Gentile. Jesus has Gentile blood. Now furthermore, you might remember that the Moabites descend from an incestuous relationship between Lot and one of his daughters. Lot, the nephew of Abraham, and one of his daughters. An incestuous relationship. That's where the Moabites come from. That's where Ruth comes from. She comes from that line of people, and she is in the line and the genealogy of Jesus. And of course, most of us know the story of the wife of Uriah, Bathsheba. David commits adultery with Bathsheba. She conceives. David has her husband Uriah killed in battle, and then he takes her to be his wife, and she eventually bears King Solomon to him, the son of David. And so we seem to have this list of morally questionable foreign women in the genealogy of Jesus. And why does Matthew identify these four women? Well, perhaps it's because Matthew intends to highlight these features to show that the irregularities that surround the birth of Jesus, that he's born to a virgin, and of course these, these kinds of questions would probably have lingered beyond the nine months that Mary carried Jesus, even into Jesus' childhood. Who was Jesus' father? There seems to be some kind of immorality associated with that. And perhaps Matthew is simply listing these things to show that this was not out of the ordinary in God's plan. That he often worked this way. God seemed to work outside the box, if you will, on a lot of occasions. Not just with the birth of Jesus. But perhaps more importantly, what Matthew is intending to highlight is the reality of God's grace. That God would enlist women such as these to contribute their DNA to the one who would save sinners. He's highlighting the reality of grace. But there's more grace. In verse 2, we read about Jacob. He is named as the son of Isaac. But Jacob isn't the only son of Isaac. In fact, he's not even the firstborn of Isaac. Esau is the firstborn. Esau is the one with status, and yet Jacob is selected. Why? Grace. He's selected by grace. And of all of Jacob's 12 sons, it's Judah who is in the genealogy. And Judah is not the firstborn either. But do you remember who Judah's mother was? Remember that Jacob had children through four women, two wives and both of the servants of his wives. But we read that 
Jacob loved his wife, Rachel, the most. He loved Rachel. But you remember who Judah's mother was? It's not Rachel. It's Rachel's sister, Leah, who Jacob only married because he was tricked into marrying her. So it's Leah who stands in the line of Jesus. Weak-eyed Leah is what she's called in the Old Testament. I don't know what that means, but apparently it means that she was commonly overlooked by men. Jacob didn't want Leah. He wanted his sister, her sister, Rachel. Genesis 29.30 tells us explicitly that Jacob loved Rachel more than he loved Leah. But however much Leah may have been overlooked by men, she was not overlooked by God. God showed her grace and put her in the line of the one who would save the world. And then amazingly, we read of this guy named Manasseh in verse 10. He's one of the kings. This is what the Old Testament tells us about Manasseh, 2 Kings chapter 21. It says that this Manasseh did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places that Hezekiah, his father, had destroyed, and he erected altars for Baal and made an Asherah. He's an idolater, as Ahab, king of Israel, had done, and he worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. And then later in verse 11 of this chapter, we read that he did more evil than the Amorites who were in the land before him. He acted more wickedly than a Canaanite. And yet, this Manasseh stands in the line of Jesus. He's in the genealogy of Jesus. What are we to make of all this? What are we to make of such a genealogy? Grace. The reality of grace. That's what we're to make of this genealogy because it's not the kind of genealogy that we would expect, is it? It's not composed of the best or the brightest or the prettiest. In fact, it's composed of people that a lot of us wouldn't want to have anything to do with. I mean, think about it. Jesus' great, 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 fill it in, grandmother, was a hooker. That's in the line of Jesus. What do we make of that? Grace. God comes in grace. He comes into a sinful world through a sinful people to save sinners. And he gets into the messiness of that. He doesn't, doesn't come because he doesn't want to get his hands dirty. He's willing to get his hands dirty. In fact, he's willing to get his hands bloody because that's what grace does. And isn't it, isn't it good news for us that God adopts not just the best and the brightest and the prettiest? Aren't you glad that God embraces the weak and the broken people like you and like me? And aren't you glad that your past doesn't disqualify you from being used by God? And that no matter how messed up your life might be right now, that it doesn't keep God from embracing you with his grace and using you as an instrument to propel his kingdom forward. Christmas is about grace. And you can't get past the first 17 chapters of Matthew without hearing it, without hearing that note. And of course, it makes sense that Matthew would want to emphasize the reality of God's grace. Because Matthew himself was a despised tax collector who found the grace of God in Jesus. 
And sinners like Matthew, who have experienced that grace, will celebrate that grace, and they'll be eager to show that grace, to let that characterize us, especially this season, where we have an opportunity to show grace to our neighbors, our friends, and our family. But the genealogy of Jesus doesn't just speak of the reality of God's grace. It also speaks of the reality of God's faithfulness. Before Matthew lists any other names, he identifies Jesus as the son of David, the son of Abraham. It's the first two names he actually mentions. Why does, why does he use that designation? Why does he describe Jesus that way initially? Well, he, Matthew's declaring here that the birth of Jesus is a confirmation that God is faithful to all the covenant promises he makes in the Old Testament. He's faithful to those promises that he's made. That Jesus is the son of David means that God is faithful to the promise he made to David that one of David's descendants would always reign on the throne of God's kingdom forever and ever. That's what he promises David. We read of that in 2 Samuel chapter 7. He says this to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Well, the promised offspring of David, according to Matthew, has come. Jesus is the son of David, the true son of David who reigns as king forever over God's kingdom. But God's covenant promises actually originate before the time of David. We have covenant promises made to Abraham. God promised Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, the first verses there, when he and Sarah were old and they were beyond the age of bearing children, that they would have a son and that through Abraham and his offspring, all of the nations of the earth would be blessed. It's the promises he made to Abraham. That through his offspring, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And what Matthew is claiming now is that that promised child to Abraham has actually come. It's not Isaac. It's the greater Isaac. The promised child of Abraham has come, the son of Abraham, to bring blessing to all nations by bringing salvation. It's Jesus. But Matthew is declaring that God is faithful to those promises that he spoke long ago. And some of you might be feeling overwhelmed with life and its circumstances right now. You might be overwhelmed with your relationships, your marriage, relationships with parents, with children. You might feel overwhelmed because of finances, uh, the fiscal cliff, um, your job. You might have a lot of anxiety about your grades or your future or the safety of this country. You might be feeling a lot of stress and anxiety and feeling overwhelmed about your health or the health of loved ones at this time. And you need to be reminded this morning of the reality of God's faithfulness. Whatever your circumstances are right now, remember that God is faithful to all of his promises. It might take time for you to see that. You might have to wait just as the promises made to Abraham and David were not fulfilled immediately. God wasn't in a hurry to fulfill those. It took time. There was a lot of waiting involved. But you can be sure that God will show himself faithful to all that he declares to you. That regardless of your circumstances, his grace is sufficient for you. Remember 
that you can do all things through Christ who gives you strength, whether that's in the midst of plenty or in the midst of lack. And God will be faithful to his promises. He will work all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his grace. You might feel dreadfully alone this Christmas. And you need to remember the promise that God makes that he will never leave you or forsake you. Regardless of how lonely you're feeling, you're not alone. The creator of the universe draws near to you and he's as mindful of you as he was of Leah. And you might be carrying a lot of anxiety and fear about the future. You need to remember the promises of God that you, you can cast your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. And you can remember the promises of Jesus that you don't need to worry about what you're going to eat or what you're going to eat where or what you're going to drink. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. Those are promises that he speaks. And you might be overwhelmed by a sense of guilt because of your sins. And you need, to read, you need to remember God's promise that if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you your sins and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. You don't have to bear that guilt. God promises you that when you turn to him in repentance and confession. And you might be battling sickness, the weakness of your body, grieving the loss of loved ones who are no longer here to celebrate Christmas, Christmas with you. And you're grieving. And you need to remember the promise that Jesus spoke. That if anyone believes in him, even though that person dies, yet that person will live. That's the promise that Jesus speaks. And so as surely as Christmas has come, and as surely as we read the fulfillment of God's promises in Matthew chapter 1, you can be certain that God will fulfill all the promises that he speaks to you in the word. He will fulfill all of those promises, especially the ultimate promise of deliverance. And that really brings us to our final point, the reality of God's deliverance. The conclusion of Matthew's genealogy in verse 17 allows us to detect the structure uh, that Matthew adopts in order to convey his message through this genealogy. In verse 17 we read, So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. And so the deportation to um, Babylon here is in reference to when the people were exiled 586 years before the birth of Jesus. They were exiled, removed from the land because of their sins. That's the deportation to Babylon. But you can see here that Matthew is very deliberate in structuring this genealogy into three groups of 14 or three groups of seven, which is the number of fullness, times two. Three groups of seven times two. And Matthew is being very intentional here because he's not being absolutely chronological. Some of you know that there's also a genealogy of Jesus in Luke. It has some differences. I'm not going to get into details of of how we account for those differences. But Luke records 42 generations between David and Jesus. Matthew records only 27. Only 27 because he's deliberately structuring the genealogy This way. And why does he do so? Well, for Matthew, he's declaring that the fullness of time has arrived. The 
culmination of all the promises and God's redemptive work in history is reaching its fullness here with the birth of Jesus. Did you ever notice that the Bible, particularly the Old Testament, is full of genealogies? Your Old Testament is full of genealogies. Did you ever stop and wonder why that is? Well, it's because the Old Testament is concerned to trace God's faithfulness to these promises he's made to Abraham and David and about their offspring. The whole Old Testament is tracing the fulfillment of those promises. But have you also ever noticed that once you get to the New Testament, or at least once you get outside of the early chapters of the Gospels, you don't get any more genealogies? They're done. Why? Because all the genealogies have been about Jesus. The whole Old Testament is about Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of those promises of offspring to Abraham and David. He is the promised one to come. It's all been about him. And now Matthew is declaring, and the whole New Testament declares, he's here. And he's here to deliver. That's why he's come. He's come to deliver because for Matthew, the fullness of time means it's the end of exile. The deportation to Babylon section ends with the birth of Jesus because exile ends with the birth of Jesus. So notice that this path of Messiah passes through the gracious covenant pledge of the promised child to Abraham, through the glory of the Davidic king, and then it descends into this gloomy pit of exile. And it might seem for a period of time that God's promises led to the dead end of exile. It just kind of stops there. And it prompts this cry, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel who mourns in lonely exile. It's stuck in exile, but it doesn't end in exile. It ends with the birth of Jesus, the Messiah. That's what Matthew is declaring. Christmas proclaims the end of exile and the reality of God's deliverance because the deportation to Babylon finds its spiritual termination, its spiritual ending point in the birth of Jesus. Spiritually, the exile actually ends with the birth of Jesus because you have to understand that the idea of exile of God's people goes back before the deportation to Babylon. That's not when people were first exiled. We actually trace exile all the way back to Genesis 3 where our first parents, Adam and Eve, were exiled or driven out of the garden because of their sin. That's where the exile begins. And the truth is, we're all exiled from God because of our sin. We're all alienated and separated from him in his blessing because of our sin. But Jesus has come to deliver us from our sin. He's come to end our exile. And in fact, the promise of his coming to deliver us from our sin and to deliver us from the curse of sin and the exile that that brings is also announced in Genesis chapter 3. So the first exile is in Genesis 3, and the promise to deliver from exile is also in Genesis 3. This is what Mark Beach writes. Christmas commences not when Mary is visited by an angel, and not when the Magi see a star, and not when an innkeeper turns away an all-too-pregnant woman and her husband. Christmas commences with a promise made to another turned-away couple, Adam and Eve, and a promise about her seed in Genesis 3.15. 
So actually, the promise made to Abraham and his offspring and David and his offspring actually goes back even further than either of them. It goes back to this promise in Genesis 3, 15, where God promises a deliverer, the reality of God's deliverance. And so Jesus leaves his heavenly glory. This is uh, Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And so Jesus leaves his heavenly glory to be born in a manger and he walks a path that leads to the cross where we hear him cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know what kind of language that is? That's the language of exile. Why have you forsaken me? It speaks the language of exile, but it also speaks the language of the end of my exile. It speaks the language of the end of my separation. Because Jesus is forsaken, because Jesus is exiled, all those who look to him by faith never will be separated again, never will be exiled. It's through his dark path of exile through his walking through the valley of the shadow of death, that he's able to bring us light and he's able to bring us life, new life, new birth, through his birth, life, death, and resurrection. And because of the reality of God's deliverance in Jesus, we can be delivered from our fears and our anxieties. We can find deliverance from all of our weaknesses and our sicknesses and our sins. And we can find deliverance even from death and the grave by looking to Jesus. Jesus is the end of exile for every sinner who believes. But that means we're no longer captives now. We're no longer bound to the patterns of sin and self-destruction that plague us and entangle us in life. In a few verses, Matthew's gonna record the words that the angel speaks to Joseph about the name of Jesus. And he's to be named that because he will save his people from their sins not in their sins, so that we can remain bound in these patterns of sin and destruction in our life. He's come to save us from our sins. Jesus gives us freedom not only from the penalty of our sin and the condemnation that that brings, but from the power of sin. Christmas is a call to new obedience, to live like you're no longer exiled, to live in freedom from sin. It's a call to new obedience and holiness and righteousness. Now is the time. Today is the day, not New Year's Day, not resolutions. Today is the day to repent of your sins and to look to Jesus for the strength to overcome those sins that are plaguing you. But of course, it's a battle that has to be fought in the reality of God's grace that comes through Jesus, in the reality of God's faithfulness in Jesus, and the reality of God's deliverance by Jesus. You know, it's easy to miss some of these fundamental realities when we're reading the opening chapters of Matthew. It'd be easy to miss them. But you know, in the midst of all the shopping, all the presents, all the travel, all the cooking, all the family, it's easy to miss a lot of things, including Jesus at Christmas time. Let's not do that. Let's not miss Jesus at Christmas. Because really, it's in Jesus that you can know the reality of God's grace, that you can trust in the reality of God's faithfulness, and that you can experience the reality of God's deliverance. Let's pray.
Gracious God, we thank you for the gift of your son, born to set your people free. Help us to live as a free people, to live by faith in your grace, your faithfulness, and your deliverance. Let us embrace those realities in Jesus' name. Amen.